Let's go on to your next patient. Okay, so you may have to take a deep breath here, but this was a pretty emotional visit. This is a woman who was 42 years old. This was nine years ago in the year 2000. She presented with a very large 8-centimeter, 9-centimeter left breast cancer, invasive ductal carcinoma. It was ER positive, PR positive, HER2 new positive. We treated her with two cycles of AC chemotherapy prior to surgery. She had dramatic reduction. Her surgeon at that time, which is probably different from now, elected not to do a lymph node dissection at the time of her surgery because she felt she had such extensive disease it would not change her outcome. She received two further cycles of AC chemotherapy in that year, 2000 was started on tamoxifen. She was then swimming in a pool in late 2001 and developed some neck pain. She was very upset about this today. Again, this goes back seven years. Was seen at local hospitals, physical therapy. No one told her that there might be a problem. She eventually was seen by a neurologist who got a CT and there was a lytic fracture in her C-spine. And she was transported by private car to our medical center here in Portland to neurosurgery. And there was a lot of anger still about how her treatment could have caused a catastrophic neurologic event. She had a fusion. The biopsy was obtained and showed metastatic cancer. She was changed at that time to Lupron and Femora and did well for a period of time until she showed progressive bony-only disease. And at that time, Dr. Spitzer at Mass General on clinical trial did an autologous stem cell transplant with high-dose cytoxin and carboplatin, one of the last ones he did. She did well off any therapy for about six months until early 2003 when she relapsed with her progressive bony disease. She was started on Zometa and Herceptin. In July of that year, she had increasing tumor markers. We then added Taxol to the Herceptin, and she continued on Zometa and Lupron and had very good response to that treatment. In August in 2003, she elected to have a brain MRI. She had no symptoms. She just wanted to know, and in fact, three brain metastases were present. She knows exactly where they are. She was seen by radiation oncology. They discussed whole brain irradiation. She had a young son who was, you know, six years old at the time of diagnosis. She was raising as a single mom. She's a pretty rough and tough lady from a lobster town in Maine, and she declined radiation therapy because of her worry about what would happen to the quality of her life. She's also an accountant. She then elected to go. We put her on Navalbean with very close follow-up of her brain, and she did very well. And then in the winter of 2005, there was enlargement of the occipital metastasis, and she underwent stereotactic gamma knife radiation to the brain and has remained basically with no progressive disease in her brain over these five years with only stereotactic treatment to the one brain metastasis. In 2005, she had a year of taxotere with her septin with development of pleural effusions, severe tearing of the eye, some lower extremity edema, but with great cancer response. She didn't like it, but chugged through it. She took Lasix and got through it. 
We finally stopped Lupron in 2006 as she was clearly postmenopausal serologically. She then in 2006 went to Gemzar with her septin and had a modestly good response for four months. In the fall of 2006, she was one of the original or at least primary original clinical trial patients of lapatinib and capecitabine and remained on that trial for over two years, nearly two and a half years, even after the trial was let go, the investigators wanted her to stay on it and got the drug. So she had a dramatic response to that for two and a half years. How did she do on that side effects wise? Very well. She had almost no side effects. She'd come in with red hands and peeling and she'd say, you know, that's just Zolota. Maybe we'll drop it down a pill. I mean, she never missed a cycle. What's your experience been, Kevin, with side effects and toxicity issues with lapatinocapecitabine? Well, first of all, ironically, the population of patients where we'd have the opportunity to give them lapatinib and capecitabine has seemed to diminish dramatically in the last three years. So the opportunities to use this combination have been fewer than I would have anticipated. Well, based on the adjuvant use of trastuzumab? Right, insofar as that is entirely attributable to that. Our experiences, I think, has been consistent with the clinical trials in that the problem that we're seeing is the problem with GI toxicity. And I have to confess that we tend to dose capecitabine much more conservatively than they did in that clinical trial, or at least as conservatively as they did in that clinical trial. And we don't necessarily always give capecitabine for a consecutive 14-day period. That's not consistent with the capecitabine label. But I think, you know, it's something we've become accustomed to doing. As a result, we see diarrhea. And we see it ranging generally from grade 1 to 2 and dose-adjust accordingly. That has been the biggest impediment to the use of this combination. The second biggest impediment has been taking these two oral medications requires some discipline on the part of the patient because, you know, they're not to be taken at the same time. One is to be taken on an empty stomach one is to be taken on a full stomach, and this patient gave us a fascinating recounting of how she built her day around taking these medications the right way. And I often wonder whether most human beings are capable of that kind of discipline, and it worries me because to take these medicines incorrectly could yield higher toxicity. Yeah, I do remember, I think there was a paper recently, I think it was in the JCO, looking at this issue of food and lapatinib, showing it really does have an impact. Yeah, the absorption of these drugs is clearly influenced by what's in the stomach at the time, and how not only would lapatinib toxicity go up if the stomach was full, but that maybe if the stomach was full, the dose of lapatinib that would be required for effective therapy would be lower. But we have the data, we have what we have, and you know, to do this the right way, lapatinib should be given when the stomach is empty, and solota should be given when the stomach is full, and it requires some commitment and effort on the part of the patient. Rick, how do you approach this? And There have been reports, mainly at a memorial, looking at Cape Cytobine seven days on, seven days off. I have used the memorial scheduling, as we've learned from your programs. And I think, as we've learned with Zolota, that, you know, the patients, as someone said, the patients really know what they can tolerate and what they can't. And some of these women who have been on it for years can take very little. But, you know, sometimes... Like the old bro cream ad, a little dabble do you. Some of those modest doses of Zolota seem to work. So I think we have to listen to the patients. I do like the one week off, one week on for patients who want to do this. The other thing about her, which was, again, fascinating, was in 2008, October, so really just eight months ago or so, she developed a massive stroke. 
and she could not come to the office. She was hospitalized for a period of time. We all worried about, she had been on Avastin briefly with her septin. We all worried about that, although she was not on it at the time. And it turned out she had 100% occlusion of her right carotid artery. She had a high cholesterol. She's a big lady, had a lot of family history of vascular disease. One wonders why. And remarkably, she came to my office in a wheelchair, could barely speak, couldn't lift her left arm. If you saw her today, you'd never know she had a stroke. She is devoted to beating this disease and raising her son. She eventually went on to a Braxane in her septin recently, and her pain went away again. She continued on quarterly Zometa. Her markers finally increased, and we said, hey, we either stop drawing these markers or we pay attention to them, as Dr. Fox had outlined. So we restaged her. Her brain is stable. Her stroke symptoms are markedly improved. And I, while awaiting some of the newer therapies that Dr. Fox outlined today, including TDM1 and pertuzumab and the encouragement that he felt and Dr. Weiner's felt on your program about this kind of disease with the new drugs, awaiting some of those, currently she is receiving lapatinib and trastuzumab. And how is she doing? She's tolerating it very well. I think it's a little early to know whether it's helping, but she feels great. She was very emotional recapping, and frankly, so was I, hearing her recap nine years of an incredible journey with transplants, strokes, C-spine fractures. And when I asked her about her emotions, she really went back to the day that she was first told she had breast cancer, and she really burst out crying a little bit today. But she's a tough lady, and she's well-known in our office, obviously, and she's gregarious, but she is a fighter, and I would never want to bet against her. It was an extraordinary visit. Now, how old is your son at this point? He's now 15. He's 6'3". He plays football and baseball. You know, he was six when we first met him. He's a little squirt. She told us today he has a girlfriend. And I said, gee, you know, I asked you about that before. And she said, yeah, well, he didn't tell me that. And I said, yeah, I told you he wouldn't tell you that when he got a girlfriend. (laughs) So she was obviously pretty pleased about this. Interesting. How do you deal with the issue of people, particularly with metastatic disease like this, who have children in the age range, and here you're dealing with a child who's going from age 6 up to 15, going through this whole scenario. How do you approach that? Is it something you ask patients about? What have you seen, for example, with this particular young man in terms of how he's dealt with this? Well, I've talked to him about it, and he, I think like most children, my experience is they know a parent has a problem, and as long as the parent is doing well and that they believe that their parent is receiving compassionate care, I think children are remarkably resilient. I encourage our patients to bring the children, you know, at appropriate age into the office to show them that we're caring, hopefully, that chemotherapy is not with a black Vader providing it, that these are caring nurses, that we have humor, there's laughter, they're surrounded by good people. And in my experience, at least, children seeing that kind of supportive environment are less frightened about chemotherapy and mom going to this office to receive these kind of poisons. And it's a pleasure to know them. And I think children do well with information. As you and I have talked as a former educator, I think kids know a lot. And if we hide too much from them, they get scared. They start to have ideas that they caused the problem. They were a bad girl or boy. They took too many cookies. So I think more information to them, age appropriate, is generally very helpful. Kevin, Rick mentioned some of the new anti-HER2 approaches that are coming out. TDM1, which we've been hearing about for a while. There was also a paper presented at the recent ASCO meeting by Chuck Vogel looking at that. 
pertuzumab also. There was a poster discussion paper presented at ASCO. Can you talk about what those two presentations showed and the overall data right now that we have for these two agents? The one that has, at least to me, caused the most enthusiastic response, and this is just my response, is TDM1. I mean, it's a concept which isn't necessarily new, but it's the first apparently successful application of the concept in metastatic breast cancer. It's just simple conjugation of trastuzumab to a chemotherapeutic agent, which is basically a tubulin inhibitor, something with which all of us were heretofore unfamiliar. And I think the remarkable thing is that the rate of response has been so high, 30 to 40 percent, in patients who are so heavily pretreated with trastuzumab-based therapies. And I'm astounded at the degree to which it has been successful, and I'm also very much astounded by its apparent lack of significant toxicity, at least in the doses that have been studied. So it would appear to me that this, you know, on the surface seems to be a legitimate therapeutic option, which, you know, for patients like the one we just described, they're in desperate need of, because the natural history of this illness, HER2 positive breast cancer, is so different now. And here's a patient who has lived comfortably for years on a succession of targeted therapies and has done perfectly well whose brain metastases have remarkably done very little to bring her harm since they were diagnosed years ago. This lady is going to need more choices real soon. So that's one that I think is very exciting. Pertuzumab, the concept is a wonderful, simple concept. It's just a a monoclonal antibody which targets HER2 at the so-called dimerization region. So it's a mechanism of action which is completely, at least from a geographic point of view, completely independent of trastuzumab and has shown activity in combination with trastuzumab in patients who were apparently refractory to trastuzumab. The question as to whether pertuzumab will have any value on its own, I think, is an enduring question. It appears to have some value as a monotherapy, but I think the future of pertuzumab, much as with trastuzumab, lies in its combination with chemotherapy. But it would seem, again, on the basis of remarkably favorable toxicity profile that pertuzumab is a legitimate contender for targeted therapy for HER2-positive women. I'd give the gold and silver medal in no particular order to those two right now, but as you know better than I, there are lots of targeted therapies under investigation for HER2-positive breast cancer now, and I don't know who the winners will be.